Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sabinan. I am the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. We have new episodes dropping every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Today on Battle Rhythm, I'm talking with Professor Anessa Kimball from Laval University, now one of our co-hosts of the podcast. She's been with us before, but I thought I'd introduce again. And so, Anessa, good to talk to you again. How do you manage to, to juggle all the things you do? What's your battle rhythm? Well, I can say well, thank you very much for inviting me, Steve. It's great to be back again. So my battle rhythm in a typical day is basically, I think, like most mothers of 11-year-olds going on probably 14 or 15. You know, I'm trying to keep the day going along, manage the child in the summer. We, you know, we have a little bit of a different rhythm, but, you know, normally making sure that he's getting his studies done in a typical work day, head off down to campus. I'm quite lucky that my campus schedule is fixed. And so I teach on two. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Wednesdays is my day for students. And so if you need to find me, that's when to find me. Or if you want to, you know, complain uh, about the, the podcast, that's when you can find me. And then, you know, right now I'm working on a book. And so that's been the biggest rhythm of my whole entire summer. And I got to read the book uh, last week. It's about moving beyond 2% burden sharing. I think she does a great job. And that's what you do a great job of busting that and looking beyond that simple marker, since that simple marker is so bad. I was disappointed that you didn't use my favorite example in the book, which is if 2% is a great metric, then grief is a great analog. I think that by itself tells you that we need to figure out another way to measure what, what burden sharing really looks like. And what we'll do is when the book is ready for sale in end of this year, beginning of next year, we'll talk a bit more about it directly so that way you can sell many copies. Of course. Thank you. So since it is about NATO and burden sharing, why don't we start with the, one of the topics since the last time we talked, which is a NATO strategic concept that at the summit in Madrid, NATO enunciated a new strategic concept. Why should we care? And do you think that, that this particular concept is an improvement? And is there anything that was missing from it? Well, I mean, I'd say for a concept that we've been waiting for for a long time, uh, remembering, of course, that the groundwork for this concept started way back in 2018. And so between 2018 and 2022, we've seen a lot of change in, in the landscape of the international landscape, one might say, you know, and relative to, to previous strategic concepts, you know, this is a short one. You know, I think that it speaks a little bit to, you know, the fact that there may be a little bit of lack of consensus about how to characterize some of the threats. You know, I think that it does have a little more pragmatism than some of the other ones had, you know, it talks about the 360 approach and it talks about um, it embraces kind of more the multi-domain awareness than it has done before a little bit on China which I think that of course that's something that is interesting and important in the sense that NATO has you know basically shied away from talking
talking about China mostly and its strategic concepts as they've been, you know, kind of not talking directly about Russia, though this time, of course, the strategic concept uses a, a different language because of what's going on in, in Ukraine. What did you see that you or what did you not see in the concept that you wanted to see? That's a good question. I think I was looking for the China stuff. So that that was striking that there was stuff on China. I think I, I didn't really notice anything that was missing per se. For me, I tend to be kind of skeptical about these things, but yet I see the importance of them. I'm skeptical because, you know, events change and these things can become obsolete overnight. So the last regime concept was a, just a couple of years before Crimea and that Crimea pretty much made the entire document obsolete, or at least that was the way I, I looked at it. On the other hand, my year in the Pentagon in 2001, 2002, I really learned how important documents like these are signposts so that everybody can work towards measuring what they're doing and how they're framing things and how they're directing things to sort of line up with this sign, with this with this direction. So I think it's an important document, but I've been so much more focused on the doing lately than on the talking about the doing. So I, I guess I I haven't been as as much, as much focused on the on the concept itself. Well, and I think also you know for a concept that they'd been working on for a while, obviously the Russian invasion in the Ukraine you know kind of changed things a bit. I suspect that there were things that they probably had to take out a little bit. I suspect that there was a little bit of you know how far do we go to talk about different things? And obviously that was the you know that was kind of the whole backdrop of the Madrid summit. You know we had you know Zelensky there and the discussions about the accession of uh, Finland and Sweden, which were also going on. And so though this was a long awaited concept, my sense is that there was a, a touch of disappointment, but also like you said, well, this is where we're going in the future. And so, you know, at least we can all get behind this today and see where it's going to take us. Well, I think the bigger story that was interesting people in Canada lately has been Russia sanctions, whether we're actually do, sanctioning Russia appropriately, whether we're breaking or violating the sanctions by sending back the turbine that Canadian companies have been improving or, or modifying to go back to facilitate the flow of gas, what Nord Stream One from Russia to Germany. That got a lot of heat in Ottawa. Do you th see this as sanctions breaking or do you see this as something a little bit less severe? Is this Trudeau bending over backwards to please the Germans? How do you make sense of this? Well, I mean, I think obviously there's pressure on Canada from the Germans, uh, you know, to ensure or, you know, to support more or less ensuring that there's there's access to, to natural gas and energy. I think Trudeau is a bit in a, you know, it's a difficult place because, you know, there's needs for everyone. And I wouldn't say that this is necessarily sanction breaking, but I would say that, you know, Germany has economic benefits from having these functioning and working. And so there's a little bit of pressure that they're going to put on Canada to make sure that that works. They make money off this, you know, they make transit fee money. Uh, Germany needs that transit fee money, especially because now it's made a commitment to spend 2% on its military. And so this is a little bit of the, the, the economics of, you know, what's going on now that everybody has, you know, dumped in all of this military uh, support to Ukraine that we're, we're going to see these decisions that might see a little bit, you know, off equilibrium. But I think that this is really, you know, Germany making sure it can balance its books. Yeah, the problem is Germany has been under a lot of criticism for how it has responded both before the attack in February and since that they've 
in some ways talked a good game of what they're doing, but in some ways have not really followed through on what they're doing. So for instance, their former chancellor Schroeder is currently vacationing in Moscow and talking about what a wonderful place it is. And, and so Germany itself has to be very careful about how they're positioned on this and how they appear to be tough on Russia while at the same time benefiting from trade with Russia. And I, th- I think one of the challenges that Trudeau has is to be caught up in that because I don't think Germany has made many friends lately by trying to have it both ways. I don't think it's good for Canada to be putting its thumb on the scale on that and appearing to support Germany's waffling on these sanctions. On the other hand, of all the various things that, that Canada could have been doing lately and getting stuck in, I think this particular thing is less severe than other more direct sanction busting is. It's, it's always hard when you have an economic transaction that's halfway through when international relations interrupts and then you have to figure out what to do. If there was a new deal that was launched, I would think that would be a much more severe violation of sanctions. But it's, it's, it's basically getting something that they've repaired back to the owners, it's a little different. Like I'm always struck by how the United States in 1979 had a bunch of fighter planes, I think it was F-14s, that had been sold to the Iranians but not delivered by the time of the revolution. And then the Americans are like, no, we're not gonna give you these planes now. And that was a, a topic of controversy for you know, a long, long time. Uh, although it's funny because uh, some of those planes kind of did make the same Top Gun uh, Maverick movie where, where there was an old F-14 that was used. But that's a side, a side trip. The thing about the Germans though is they, they're going to get to two percent but i I was at a conference in may and there's a lot of doubt that they would actually either get there or stay there that it might be a temporary bump because the current government is not willing to obligate the next government and defense spending has such long time horizons that you really need to schedule things out you know seven eight nine ten years and if you're not willing to do that then you can't really allocate a lot of money because all these projects take years to to build on the other hand we did see uh, shots there on twitter of German weapons systems being active in Ukraine. So it's a really weird path they're following. And as a result, we're getting caught up in it. I mean, this speaks a little bit to, you know, what we might consider kind of intra-European shuffling that's happened since Brexit. You know, I think that there's a lot of, between the German and the French duo about, you know, who's in charge or who's on first when it comes to the European Union. And I suspect that this is a, this is a little bit all up in there as well, that there are things, we are seeing this a bit from the NATO-Canadian perspective, right? In some senses, whereas, you know, for in the German-French EU perspective, it's, it's a question about energy. Energy, it's a question about access. It's a question, I mean, for them, maybe even a question about, you know, uh, citizen well-being in some senses to keep this going, to keep the economy moving. Right. And so we're kind of just seeing this as a bit is the sanction breaking, breaking and stuff like that. So and I agree with you, this the, the Schultz government has been waffling. It's been, you know, I think that some of it is a bit trying to not over jump or trying to not extend past what would be kind of the memories limit of what German military power and all of that. So like, how do you sell 2% when you still have some people that might be afraid of a resurgent Germany? Germany. Even though this is not realistic, I still think that inside Germany, there are people that still have that that bit of a fear of what it would be perceived as to go too far externally. And I think sure. he's, you know, he's trying he's trying to balance that in some senses. And then the other thing I often say is that 2% really says nothing about what countries buy and what use that is and what that means to the NATO club. You know, you could spend a whole ton of money and make 2%. 
but spend it on things that are not needed or things that are, you know, not interoperational or things like that. So again, you know, we, we have this issue about the target that's not, it's a political target rather than a kind of pragmatic one. Yeah, I think to talk about the Germans just always gets me frustrated because their dependence on energy from Russia is in part based on their decision to get rid of their nuclear power plants. And they could go back and turn those power plants on, but their ideology and their politics says they can't do that, which makes them, again, more dependent on the Russians. And, and it's just, you know, it was an overreaction of Fukushima that the, the action in, in Japan in, in 2011, and they haven't been able to undo that. And so we have this path dependence in the political system that cuts off choices that would make these trade-offs for the Germans less severe. And it, it just is hard to see how you can react to contemporary events and not undo some decisions that you might have made at a time where, for some reason, they thought being dependent on Russian energy was not a problem. Mm-hmm. It was always problematic, but it's more problematic now than it was five years ago, and so they might want to revisit it. You know, German politicians have their own domestic audiences, their own constituencies that they have to worry about, and I guess they feel as if that their voters care a lot more about nuclear power plants than being dependent on the Russians. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to pay for that in, uh, this upcoming winter. Things get really hard. Well, yeah, and I think that that's another thing that's a bit, you know, we, we've kind of, we went a bit past that point where there was a lot of leverage to be used with the natural gas and with cutting off the energy and all of that. So, you know, these are kind of follow-up things, but we, what we are seeing is that conflict in the Ukraine is, you know, becoming entrenched and we are seeing more and more people say that it's probably not going to end soon. And so, you know, will we see this extend into the fall and into next winter where this leverage may become more important when it might be even more acrimonious, you know, mm-hmm. five or six months down the road? It will be interesting to see, you you know, is this kind of, you know, laying some foundation for future disagreements within Europe? I, I think we need to start thinking seriously about this war going on longer and longer. I, I do think that a lot of people, including myself, were critical of discussions about giving the Ukraine's fighter aircraft because it would take a while to train and take a while to figure out the maintenance and all the rest of it. But at this point, if this war goes on for years, then the, the investment now to Fighting the Ukrainians on fighting about you know Western aircraft, not just the the MiGs they have. That becomes more worthwhile if this if you think this war is going to last. I don't think either side's going to back down too soon. I I don't see a pathway anytime too soon for either side to give in or to negotiate some some kind of settlement. The thing is, we don't know when this war is going to end. And we should stop thinking about it ending next week or next month and think about it ending next year or the year after that, because that will affect our thinking about sanctions and how long they'll last. It'll affect our thinking about whether it makes sense to transfer more advanced weapon systems, because now if we think, well, there's not enough time to train them and not enough time to set up a maintenance system or train them on maintenance and give them the spare parts. Well, if the war lasts, you know, one, two, three, four, five years, then there is time to invest in, in that kind of stuff. So that way we can be prepared or that we can get to make the difference that they can fight the war, not just next week but over the long run because i just don't think this war is going to end anytime too soon but we wanted to move on and just cover a more local story which is one of the news items that came up is the government wants to have its planes no longer tracked uh, publicly did you see the story Inessa? yeah i mean basically of course and as we know uh norad nav canada they track all planes 
that are going in the air. So all planes over North America, all planes over the world, more or less. And so one of the things they track, of course, are, you know, uh, Air Force One, which is the, the president's plane, and of course, the planes that, that Trudeau would be on. And so the question is now, you know, in uh, these days of heightened risk for leaders, you know, how can we, you know, kind of protect these leader, leaders more? And so the idea right now, I mean, basically right now is that there's tracking already available online. And so, you know, um, for instance, when there are certain sites where you can track airplanes, you can track boats, of course. Remember when the boat was uh, stuck there in Africa? So we, we were all kind of tracking it slow-mo, seeing how slowly it was moving. And so this is a security risk, more or less, if you can real-time track a leader. They're trying to figure out, you know, what they should do here. And do you think that they, they should bother to do this or should they just let the reality go that we know where everything's going to be at all times? I mean, I think it's a, it's a a good idea in the sense that already we do try to control the, you know, the schedules and, and such of leaders. So, you know, is this a good idea? I think it's a good idea in some senses that we already are trying to protect these leaders. You know, what, what is the, the kind of the, the cost trade-off for some of these things? For example, is it going to be expensive to do this? You know, I think that it's a bit, it's a bit of a question of, yes, Trudeau is at some, some risk, but my, my suspicion is that probably this is not for intra-Canadian travel, you know? So is this necessary? for in Canada? Maybe not. Fair. One last question for you before we move on to the interview with Amanda Connolly. We talked to Amanda Connolly, who's been covering the defense scene in Canada for quite for the past few years and is, has been part of the team at Global that really did a great job of covering the abuse of power scandal within the CAF. But before we get to that, I have one last question for you, which is, what are you reading, watching, or listening to to distract you from your work? Oh, my gosh. Well, I started reading Chantal Dulaine's book, The Ones We Left mm -hmm. Behind. So I, I actually, this is, you know, obviously I'm using a little bit my professorial power here, but I requested an exam copy for my graduate class. So that was my little secret of getting it quicker than probably some other people got it. I got it in about six days. <laughs> I understand that some people are still waiting for copies. And so I've started that. And, you know, when I'm not reading stuff like that, the other stuff that I've been reading has been mostly some hardcore feminist theory stuff that I've been reading stuff by Kate Mann. So I guess I would say my pleasure reading might not be pleasurable for everyone, but that's kind <laughs> of what I relax with. And so her last book um, was excellent. It was called Entitlement, and it was on how male entitlement hurts women. And she has another book coming out very soon on fat phobia and how fat phobia um, affects women and minorities in society. And so uh, that's what I've been reading. Fantastic. Well, as I said, we're going to go to the interview I had with Amanda Connolly a couple weeks ago, and we'll be hearing from you again, I guess, in about a month or two when it's your turn in the rotation of our co of our many co-hosts. So I want to thank you, Anastra, for your time today and enjoy the last month of summer before we have to go back to the classroom. Yep. Enjoy the rest month of summer and enjoy the rest of your visit in Philadelphia, as I understand you're there. And I am jealous. I want a Philly cheesesteak. I had a good one yesterday. I'm going to make sure I have another one before I leave town. Oh, now uh, you're just torturing me. Well, I am going to get off now to go to the beach. So there's some more torture for you. But <laughs> it's been a long summer. So it's good to get to see my family. My mom's 90th birthday party. And it's actually this week is my birthday. So a lot of fun to be here. Yes, double celebrating. And of course, I will see you next at the Summer Institute um, next month. Absolutely.
Today at Battle Rhythm, we're talking with Amanda Connolly, the senior political reporter for Global News. Amanda and I have chatted over the years as she's uh, sought me out from time to time to seek my opinions for some strange reason. But now we're talking to her because we'd like to get a better perspective of how does it work to be a defense journalist in a country where everybody says nobody cares about defense, but yet it's constantly front page news. So that's one of the questions I didn't prepare her for that I suddenly realized I want to ask. First, Amanda, welcome to Battle Rhythm. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's it's nice to be on the other end of this. As you mentioned, I'm usually the one seeking you out and, and pestering you with all kinds of questions just because it's, it's so great to get the chance to uh, to chat with you. So thank you. And so I guess the first thing is, how'd you get into this business of defense journalism? I mean, your beat is larger than that, but there's only a handful of people in Canada who cover defense and you're one of them. So how'd you get into this? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I always um, feel a little bit weird kind of calling, you know, calling myself a defense journalist because as, as you mentioned there, of course, I cover so many things in addition to defense, although defense really kind of is at the heart of what I love working on as, as a reporter, along with security and, and foreign policy and that. But I think in a lot of ways, it really is emblematic of kind of where the industry is right now. And we'll kind of get into that in a little bit here, I think. But for me, really, the the path towards defense started with, like, for a lot of people in my generation, you know, I'm 32, a millennial here. To be honest, it really started with 9-11. That was kind of one of the formative experiences for me as a young person growing up watching that and just really having this feeling this deep need to understand what was happening, how it could happen. And the way that it really went on to shape the world that I was living in as a young person, that really, I think, is the roots of it. And from there, it's just been this, this kind of evolving interest in national security and defense in kind of how we are trying to adapt to and prevent things like this happening again. And, and that really, I think, is probably the root of it. And so you went to university, you studied what? Journalism? I did, yes. I went to Carleton University. Go Ravens. I am a proud alumna of, of Carleton. Carleton, uh, studied journalism. It was the four-year bachelor's program and did a minor in history, which, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people might not necessarily think is, is kind of a directly applicable thing there for, for defense. But for me, I, I was lucky in that Carleton has a really strong program around defense, around that kind of programming. And so I was able to take courses like a history of warfare and technology mm -hmm. and warfare and things like that, that were just, you know, endlessly fascinating in terms of understanding the evolution here of warfare and conflict and, and the way that the world as we know it now has been shaped. And so you have that background, you, you get the, the job working for Global and they say, hey, there's this beat that nobody seems to care about, but it always is making the news. Go cover it. Is that, is that sort of how it played out? Well, so you know what? It was actually a bit of a long path. My first kind of job in the industry was actually working for the CBC out in Calgary. And I was there for about two years. And during those two years, the, uh, the big flood happened in 2013. Mm -hmm. So I was... Uh, out there covering that and really just seeing that kind of the critical infrastructure devastation that happened as a result of that and following along with some of the uh, the, the early coverage that was happening of the so-called you know Islamic uh, Islamic State Daesh and that really was kind of cementing for me this this desire to be in the coverage of, of national security and defense was able to move to Ottawa worked at politics for a couple of years and then on to global and have really been been lucky in a way that uh, you know my, my first job here on the hill was one of the rare ones where you are able to develop a beat like defense. That's certainly not a common thing these days. As you've mentioned there, there's not a lot of people covering this. And so I am really, uh, really lucky to have had that opportunity and to be able to, to work now for Global, where we have this incredible bench strength in defense and, and foreign policy and security. And so that gets to one of the key conundrums I've had over the past few years, because whenever we talk to people in government or people, in the, even in the private sector, they say nobody really cares about defense. 
but yet Global puts a fair amount of resources into it. The newspapers constantly have front page stories above the fold about defense. And so I'm curious from, you know, you're working with your editors. How do you make sense of this? Is it that people care about it? They just don't care about it in ways that the, the government wants? I mean, why do you think there's an audience for this stuff if other folks don't think there's an audience for this stuff? That's a really good question. I think you're right. What we hear a lot is that defense is a difficult topic for Canada. And I think part of that really comes to the fact that just we're, we're a smaller country. We don't have the population population base um, the, with the kind of direct tangible experience in the military that the U.S. has, for example, and that is part of it. But I think more broadly, I would really challenge the assertion that Canadians don't care about defense. I think that there actually is a deep care for what is going on in the world, particularly Canada's place in the world. And that is only becoming more clear and more apparent with each kind of passing month here that we're in during these tumultuous years. It might not be an interest in the sort of classical, quote unquote, defense, talking about procurement spending and the kind of intricacies of which shipyard is building which ship and things like that. But that's our job as journalists is to try and make people realize the impact that those stories have more broadly on their own security, on Canada's place in the world, on our ability to influence. And that to me is kind of what I love most about The Beat is that it's taking these topics that can sometimes feel a little bit distant and sterile for people at home mm -hmm. who maybe aren't seeing the direct impact and showing them what that direct impact is, or at least can be and why we need to care about that. Well, I guess one of the things that's been going on lately is, I think this is true for a lot of democracies, that the, the stories that really catch fire are the personnel stories. It's about the people in the military and how they're treated, because we identify not necessarily with shipbuilders or with ships, but we identify with the people who are in the military. So Global has won awards, deservedly so, for your team coverage of the sexual misconduct, abuse of power scandal that has shaken the military. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you guys have made a huge difference in Canadian defense, because it was your team breaking the story week after week that humbled a series of the chiefs of defense, a series of generals and, and admirals, and put the government's feet to the fire better than any of the Iraq in Canada. Certainly better than the defense committee, certainly better than other folks we would expect to play a role in this. So what was it like being in general in this process? Then we can talk about how it began and how it's shaking up now. It has been an incredible experience. And I, I think the word kind of humbling really certainly comes to mind here. It's been incredibly intense, incredibly challenging, but also incredibly humbling just to see the response to these stories. And I think when we're talking about, you know, the response and the question of do Canadians care about defense, what it really comes down to, and I think what makes people care both about defense, about politics in general, is accountability. It's that sense of power being used inappropriately that really makes people pay attention and feel that they have a stake in these stories. And that's what's been so powerful about the military misconduct stories and development over the past, gosh, I guess like 18 months here kind of thing, year and a half. That I think has been and what has made it really resonate is that this isn't just about one person. At its core, these are stories about accountability and abuse of power. And sexual misconduct is an experience that so many people in this country have, not just women. I, I always kind of bristle a bit at calling this, you know, a women's issue or things like that. Because of course, as we know, 40%, I believe, was the last number I'd heard of the, the claimants in the class action for men. This is an issue that affects everybody. And that really is part of the, the power in those stories and the courage of of people who've been speaking about it and coming forward and working as well, you know, behind the scenes to try and make a difference in, in their own circles is that it is such a deeply human story. And that really is what makes it resonate, I think. So how did it get started? How did this thing play out where this became sort of the mission of global TV and global news for every Sunday for I don't know how many Sundays in a row? How did this head the start? So I think I'm not going to kind of get too much into the details of how we came to the story and, and, and things like that. But I think what I can say is that across the entire network, Global is a company that really 
really places a very high priority on the journalistic principle of accountability. That to us, kind of at all levels throughout the organization is really a key principle in how do we shape the coverage that we do? How do we perceive our role as journalists? And that pushing for accountability really is at the crux of that. And I think that's what has allowed us to keep doing this over the course of a year and a half. Again, it is a hugely intensive effort for any news organization that's going to commit to the long haul to cover stories. And it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of recognition from people right the way through the levels of the organization to be willing to commit to that because it's a huge investment of time and resources. And we've been very lucky to have that, to have been supported in that. And there's been so much else going on in the world. Certainly it's not been a slow period of time, but again, I think it speaks to the fact that these are stories that matter deeply to Canadians and that there is a huge public interest in covering and doing justice. Because again, as I mentioned, it is something that is so directly relevant and has a huge impact on people's lives. I think what you really point to is a very important here, which is that, you know, if the media wasn't holding the military accountable for this stuff, there would not have been an Arbor report, would not have been, Mar McDonald might still be chief defense staff, people would be playing golf with John Vance without any controversy. You know, we could have somebody who's currently on trial or will soon be on trial for sexual assault, serving as chief of personnel. I mean, the whole range of individuals who've been implicated in this stuff, if it wasn't for the media, if it wasn't for you and Mercedes and the rest of your team, this stuff would still be going on. And so I guess the question then is, is how much backlash did you guys get? I know that Mercedes has put on her Instagram and, and other places some of the stuff that she gets. I assume that you've been getting a lot of pushback too. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the team as a whole, you know, it's been kind of at its core. Mercedes obviously has been our kind of incredible leader in, in all of this. And I want to just really emphasize her leadership in that. Marc-Andre Cassette, my colleague as well, all of us here have been working so hard and kind of consumed by this story. And there's certainly been backlash. There has certainly been, you know, reaction to, to that. And I'll, I'll kind of let them speak for what they've experienced. But I think for myself, you know, it's not new. I can definitely say it's certainly not the first time that I have gotten backlash, that I've gotten threats, had the whole kind of troll army issue with China a couple of years ago. This is kind of unfortunately par for the course in being a journalist, particularly being a female journalist, uh, anyone who's racialized, who is LGBTQ, who is really pushing for accountability these days. This comes with the territory, unfortunately. And so you just kind of tune it out the best you can. And you have to, I think, really protect yourself first and foremost to be able to keep doing that work and know for some people that might look like pulling back on social media. For others that might be engaging, it really will be a very personal, I think, question, but really making sure that, especially for young women who might be, you know, listening or kind of looking for considering doing this kind of work in their own careers. That's kind of the biggest thing I would say is that we need more of it and we need it to be sustainable. And to do that, we can't have people burning out when they're covering it. We really have to have support. And, and we've been very lucky that the global has been incredibly supportive for us, both at a, a company and a personal level as well. Well, that's good to hear because again, we know that you've made a tremendous contribution and we don't want you to pay a huge price for it because we want it to continue. We also want you to be penalized for doing what you've, you've done. There's an, enough folks out there who are incentivized not to pull the alarm. And the fact that you guys are out there pulling the alarm repeatedly and carrying the story, obviously it was incredibly stressful. So I'm glad that you got the support that, that you needed. Let's let's move on and talk about merging issues. In our prep for this, you indicated a variety of issues that are more interesting to you down the road. So one of the things that you pointed out to is one of the challenges you face is how do we have accountability in the cyber domain? Because you know, there's secrecy in everything that government does. And there's different reasons for different kinds of secrecy. So for instance, in the sexual assault, sexual misconduct area, it's confidentiality, it's people, you know, having rights. But in, in the cyber domain, this is just so confusing because everybody has incentive 
victims to misrepresent what they're doing, either that we're not showing off our abilities to, to fight the stuff because we don't want the other side to know how we're doing. We also don't want to admit how well the other side is doing because that suggests we have vulnerabilities. So how do you manage this as a journalist to try to suss out how severe the problems are besides when we lose half of all phone and internet service for a day or so? Yeah, you know, this I think has really been an example in a lot of ways of kind of what I was saying earlier, where Canadians care about defense and they care about security. When you make it clear to them what the stakes are and, and the Rogers outage is a prime example of that. It wasn't a cyber attack we've heard. It could have been, right? This could happen in the future. This is an example of what very much could be on any number of critical infrastructure operators. And I think question of how we are dealing with cyber threats right now, what the secret, the balance is, the appropriate balance between accountability and the at times, you know, necessary secrecy that will be taking place in this sphere is one that I think we're going to see a lot more of over over the coming years. Um, certainly, as we're seeing kind of the the build out of the CSE's capacities, the collaboration with DND that are happening right now, support in kind of the, the non-traditional areas of warfare. Russia is a prime example, uh, China, of course, as well. And so this is something that certainly for me, when we were talking about emerging issues, is, is one that I have my eye on very closely uh, and, and find just a really interesting example of that question of accountability. What will Canadians demand and expect when it comes to knowing what actions the government is taking on their behalf? Because again, if you're engaging in kind of invisible warfare here that no one knows about, where are the checks and balances? How can we do civilian oversight of some of this if we don't know what's going on? It's warfare in the dark in a lot of ways. And part of that is necessary. But part of that, I think, is going to be challenged by the, the lack of trust that we're seeing in a lot of public institutions right now and the, the really crucially important challenge for democracies around the world in building up and fostering more of that trust as we go forward. That's the key thing is that there's a temptation by governments, you know, when they're behaving appropriately on the actual sums of the matter, they still don't want to talk about it because they don't want to be held accountable, that they find the silence, they find the, the secrecy convenient, even if it's unnecessary. There's, you know, all this discussion of overclassification, but governments, you know, they don't make any noise and they can't be criticized for anything. And so I guess that's a real challenge to suss out what's the legitimate secrecy that needs to be respected versus what's the excessive secrecy that is there mostly to prevent them from you know having troublesome questions during question period. Exactly. I think that really is the crux of the issue here. You know, silence is comfortable. Silence is easy. It's convenient. Democracy isn't. And public accountability certainly shouldn't be. And so that I think is going to be one of the big challenges for defense journalists and for journalists really, quite frankly, across the spectrum of beats who are covering kind of the spillover effects of a lot of these shifts into the cyber domain is going to be finding that appropriate balance and finding ways to challenge default to silence which, I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot as well, is, is very firmly in place. You know, it's interesting too, when we're talking about, I think, trust in public institutions, because this is such an important issue and it's not a traditional defense issue, but it is a security issue. And particularly with what we've seen in the US, with what we've seen from Russia, of course, as well, they're, they're kind of destabilizing efforts around the world. This is one of those things in Canada, you know, we're paying attention. People in, I think, defense and security are really paying attention, making sure that Canadians are aware of the stakes here and the different forms that this challenge is going to take is going to be one of the big, I think, tasks for people working in the journalism uh, industry and in these fields to really communicate effectively going forward. You know, Ukraine is a prime example of that with the gas, food prices, all these things. Understanding all the interconnected layers to these things and how they're affecting us is what will enable us, I think, to have vitally necessary and important conversations going forward. Well, speaking about vitally necessary conversations going forward, when we're talking about personnel issues in the military, we were talking about misconduct, but there's a, perhaps a, a potentially bigger crisis, which is there's extremists in Canada 
who are seeing tra military training as useful for their own purposes. And they're also using the uniform for their own purposes. So how do you see this going forward in terms of your coverage? How do you cover the extremism, the cat, and how this is going to challenge recruiting and it's how it's going to challenge just civilian control of the military? It's a really good question. And I think when it comes to personnel, there can be an, a tendency, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to the fall when Defense Minister Anita Anand came in and, and one of her first big public comments was that dealing with sexual misconduct was going to be her top priority. There was some backlash to that. I think a lot of people in the industry and kind of the, the surrounding spheres here noticed that. And there was kind of a questioning of, well, is this an appropriate top priority for the Minister of Defense? All of these, I think, recognitions of what the concrete impacts are of personnel issues, of morale, of the cultures and ideologies that you're fostering within your forces that are so part and parcel to the longevity and the, the kind of existential function of the forces as a whole. You know, we saw in May or in June that, mm -hmm. that really um, damning and excellent report by the Advisory Council to the Minister on Racism, really clearly laying out the stakes here of not getting the, the culture issue in the CAF right, um, saying that new recruits are being repulsed, that they're not joining up with the forces because of the extremism, because of the misconduct, because of the racism. All these things really are part and parcel, I think, of the same conversation. And particularly with extremism, it's a difficult conversation to have. Defining it can be very difficult at times, but at other times, it's very, very clear what is extreme, what is inappropriate things to be saying, especially when there, there are groups, for example, that are listed terrorist entities and things like that, and really seeing what the willingness will be from leadership to address that going forward is going to be, I think, a really important conversation that we're going to see playing out over the coming years. And it won't be an easy one. It's going to be a really difficult conversation, just like it is, frankly, right the way across the country here. It's not only the military having this challenge. It is so many institutions, so many families across the country as well, right? Break it down to even the smaller kind of fundamental level there. Everyone knows someone that they're having these conversations with, I think, in various degrees. And so this is, in a lot of ways, an issue of our time and in response to some of those really challenging circumstances that we talked about earlier. Well, I think one of the things that makes it challenging is unlike some other dynamics, like sexual misconduct, people engaged in sexual misconduct don't have allies. And one of the things that's going to make it a little easier for Minister Don in that realm is that the John Vance of the world no longer have allies. And the people who want to push back against implementing the Arbor Report are going to have a hard time doing so because there's not going to be a whole lot of people lined up to say, hey, you're in the right side of things. We should have the complete freedom to abuse our personnel. Because of the crisis that you guys have documented so well, the military can't say, hey, we've got this. It, you know, our autonomy has been well used. So just leave us to handle it. They just can't make that argument right now. Where the problem with extremism, one of the problems with extremism is they're on one part of the political spectrum. And it could look partisan, not just political, but partisan to be going after extremists because, hey, you're you're attacking them and exposing and addressing folks who might be voting for the conservative political party of Canada, right? It, do you see this stuff being more sensitive? I mean, with the likely leader of the CPC hugging the convoy people, it raises challenges for how the media cover this because if you call the convoy people extremists, you're by proxy calling Pierre Polyev an extremist. I'm fine with that because I'm an academic and I can say what I want. But I think it might be trickier for you guys if the person who's likely to be the next leader of the conservative political party is, you know, providing cover for extremism. How do you deal with that? So I think there's a couple of questions there. And I'm going to start with the question of 
where does extremism fall on the spectrum? I think when we're talking about extremism, it's really important to be clear about what we're talking about. Are we talking about race replacement theory, things that we know are categorically and provably false and disgusting? Are we talking about opposition to vaccine mandates, for example? And so there's, there's a very, I think, difficult and challenging conversation to be had where it's really important to be clear about exactly what we're talking about. When it comes to things like the conspiracy theories that we've seen happening, race replacement, people alleging that there are, you know, microchips in COVID vaccines, things like that. I think you can talk to anyone who works in this field and their answer will be, it is vitally important for leaders to shut that down, to say this is categorically false. We know it's false and there is zero tolerance for that kind of spreading of things that we can prove and know are false. When it comes to some of the areas where there might be embraced by different political parties, that's a really tricky question. And to be quite frank with you, it's one that I hesitate to really dive into a lot publicly because of the threats that have been addressed to some of my colleagues. I think that that's a conversation that as journalists, we're still having. And it's one that I think leaders in all organizations right now are having and need to have, whether it's leaders in political parties, leaders in institutions, in academia, in again, media. These are all questions where I think it's important to be very, very clear about what we're talking about and to figure out how we're going to have a productive way to move forward in these conversations. You know, one, one of my, my profs when I was at journalism, uh, Carlton, had this saying, and he would always say that we do journalism because relationships based on understanding are always more productive than those based on prejudice. That's something that I think a lot of journalists try to embody. It's certainly something that I try and, and have guide a lot of my work. And it's the reason, for example, that I think you're seeing, again, a lot of these conversations playing out in different ways. I'm not going to kind of talk about specific politicians, frankly, just again, like I said, because of the kind of safety concerns and things like that, that, that have emerged. But I think we can safely say the, these are definitely conversations that are happening and that need to happen. Well, it's it's troubling that we can't talk about specific leaders without invoking threats to journalists, which suggests the times that we're living in are fraught and difficult. So let's move on back to the defense beat more directly, which is one of the things that's supposed to be happening this summer in town is a defense review, defense policy review. Are you expecting anything to come out of it? I am so curious to see this. And I have to say, you know, <laughs> I have to put it out there. If anyone is working on that and has a copy of it and wants to drop it over my way, please do. <laughs> um, I am more than happy with the brown paper envelopes. So let's let's do that. But no, speaking, <laughs> you know, speaking kind of specifically here, I think there's a lot of things that I am hopeful or curious to see if they will emerge in this review. I think the conversation right now around China is one that is endlessly fascinating, particularly when we're seeing the government kind of be a bit more specific in how they're talking about China. We've seen them kind of talking more about naming China in the context of some of the problems that we're seeing globally. It's a very small shift. It's a very subtle shift. But it's more than what we've seen over recent years. I think people have certainly taken note of that. I will be watching very carefully to see how that is reflected in the upcoming policy review. Again, the cyber force, the kind of balance there between accountability and, and secrecy is one that I would hope certainly that we will see serious conversation about in the defense policy review going forward. And also questions about, I think, critical infrastructure and things like civil defense. You know, when we're talking about things like the Rogers outage, about the dramatic growth in natural disasters that have placed a huge demand on mm -hmm. the Canadian military over recent years, I would be very surprised if we aren't seeing a very significant conversation happening in that defense policy review about 
what that response will look like longer term, because it is incredibly important to Canadians, to the ability to have sustainable and sound, you know, economic systems. You think of the ATMs that were hit, you think of the businesses that couldn't operate during the Rogers outage and things like that. You think of bridges, of dams, of communities built near some of these really vulnerable areas. BC, a prime example recently, where there were communities in the interior entirely cut off well, we because entirely, of, of what happened. Yeah, we, we as a country were entirely cut off in Vancouver. I've yeah, saying, exactly. I've that, that one storm cut off Vancouver more successfully than a Chinese or Russian first strike would have. <laughs> Yeah. And so that I think, I hope that there is a growing reflection on what that conversation has to look like. One of the things that I was very interested in was when we saw recently uh, Minister Anand and General Eyre speaking, and they were asked for the defense policy review. They were asked about civil defense in particular, and they didn't rule the question out when they were asked, you know, could we see investment in civil defense across Canada and things like that? I think their response was very interesting. And I don't assume to know kind of, again, what conversations are happening behind the scenes on that front. But particularly given the instability that we're seeing, given the some of the existential wording that we've been hearing from the government in talking about the global threat environment right now, I am very curious to see how they approach that particular issue and the issue of, again, critical infrastructure resiliency and mm-hmm. response, particularly in some of these really quickly changing situations. Well, Air was on this even before he was chief defense staff. When he was chief of the army, he noted that the pace of operations for domestic stuff was accelerating due to climate change and that it was going to pressure them. I think one of the interesting dynamics here that we might see, we might not see, but we might see out of this document, it might tell us something about the state of civilian control of the military because the military traditionally does not want to change its priorities. It likes to prefer the focus on the, the distant game, the, the Latvia stuff, the, the potential war with Russia, the conflict with China, and they don't want to invest in domestic operations. They see, they've traditionally seen that stuff important, but of the four or five priorities, the least of the priorities, and always seen as an inconvenience, that gets in the way of the things they really want to be doing. And I think the military and the minister, they need to enforce an attitudinal shift that these things aren't you know inconveniences, but they're the day job. They're the, you know, the, the pandemic, the floods in BC, you know, other national disasters, these these are things that affect Canadians much more so than, frankly, you know, the, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, affecting our economy with, with inflation and food shortages and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of, you know, what's killed more Canadians, pandemic and these weather systems that, have, that are getting increasingly worse. And I mean, security this- and stability, you know, they, they start at home. I think that really has been something that we've seen demonstrated over recent years is that you can have the most thoughtful foreign policy that you could try to put together. And if you're not taking care of the situation at home, if things are unstable or unsecure or vulnerable, you're not going to be able to implement that broader vision. And, and especially now in the world that we're living in that is so incredibly uncertain. Again, it will it will be a challenge for defense journalists and for journalists writ large to really drive that home and make those stakes clear. Because again, we, we have seen over the last two and a half years, three years, four years here, the powerful and crucial role that the Canadian forces plays at home and how much we rely on the forces being strong and being in an ability to do that job and keep the country and stable when push comes to shove and these things are happening. And there is, I think, perhaps a renewed appreciation, the really direct impact that Mm -hmm. the forces can have at home when things are incredibly difficult. And so that I will be very interested to see how they're balancing that conversation. That's a great point. Well, the other thing to think about in this is that strong, secure, engaged defense review of 2017. If you look at it in some ways, it was a shopping list that the military got pretty much everything they wanted. And it was led by a defense minister who was, I would say, passive uh, and submissive to a fall uh, vis-a-vis the military. And so this should be a different 
defense review because Anand is a more active, more engaged. And so I don't know if she wants to invest a lot of her team's effort in a new review. I think she'd rather focus more on getting stuff done as opposed to having a review. But the review sets up the signpost for the next five, four or five years. And so it'll be interesting to contrast the two documents to see if there's more of an imprint about, well, the military lost some battles in this, you know, they're going to get this and this, but not that and this other thing. Or is it, again, the military seems to have gotten everything they want. So I think the challenge of civilian control of the military in Canada has been that you and Mercedes and Mark andre have been doing most of the civilian control of the military the past couple of years. And the people in the government have not. And Minister Anand is a cut from a very different cloth than, than Saijan. So I expect different results, but I also expect the military to fight to maintain its autonomy because that's what militaries do. And the Canadian military has been had, has had far more autonomy than most militaries and most democracies. So I think they're going to give it up very, very reluctantly. So I think this eventually might reveal a little bit of that struggle. Maybe not. We'll see. I really appreciate your time that you've had with us today, Amanda. Your coverage of these issues, as I said, has shook Canada, has shaken the military, and it needs to be shook. It's shown the weakness of Canadian civilian control of the military, that we shouldn't have to rely on you guys to carry most of the load, but we did. And luckily you were there to carry it. So I appreciate all the work that you and your team has done. I'm sorry that has led to a fair amount of grief and abuse online and elsewhere. I'm glad you guys are getting all the awards that you deserve for your coverage because it has been a difference maker in Canada. And I think the Canadian forces will be better for it. Reluctantly so perhaps, but they will be better for it thanks to the efforts that you and your team have made. Well, thank you so much. The journalist in me kind of has to just give a small clarification there. We've been nominated for a number of awards. We haven't yet fully, I don't believe at the time of recording here, have won. So we're, we're going to kind of see that. <laughs> how it all goes. But I think the, the, the one thing that I can say with certainty, you know, is that this is not something that we are stopping covering. We are continuing to work on this. This is, again, it is so vitally important. And especially with all of the challenges that we're having right now, I'm, I'm really grateful to have been able to jump on here with you. And, and I look forward to, to talking with folks at the Summer Institute coming up. It's going to be a great chance to have some really good and important conversations. Fantastic. Yes. Amanda is going to be joining us at our Summer Institute in the middle of August, along with a bunch of other folks to help foster the next generation of defense scholars, scientists, policymakers, military officers to have a better understanding of how the entire defense and security community work to bridge the gaps between them. So we're looking forward to seeing you in person in Ottawa in about a month. Oh my goodness, this is not far away from us. I hope you get a chance to have some time off this summer before we inflict ourselves upon you. Amanda. You as well. Thank you so much.